The solution to this disconnect is birth control, and the terms that are often used to discuss this with patients and young adults are safe, protected, effective, and control, without much, if any, acknowledgement that the possibility of infection, or more importantly, pregnancy, while markedly reduced, is far from remote. This is Caring for Both, a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where experts offer insights on what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their preborn children. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. This is going to be part one of the second-to-last interview of this season of the podcast. After the last one, we're going to be on a break through February, and we'll be back in March for season two. We'll actually have some exciting changes to the podcast for next season, so we'll hope that you'll keep an eye on AppLog social media pages during our break to learn a little bit more about those and get a sneak peek of what those will be. But since this is going to be one of the last interviews, I thought we'd do something a little bit different with our guest today. Since the start of this podcast, we've brought on guests from a variety of medical specialties, OBGYNs, emergency physicians, therapists, as well as some legal experts and more, uh, to offer unique insights for pro-life medical professionals trying to lead a life-affirming career. Uh, For this episode, we're going to take more of a bird's eye view on many of these insights and how they tie together, looking at the big picture of what pro-life medical professionals are trying to do, which is promote a life-affirming society in which all human beings are valued and protected at every stage of their life. In this first half of our conversation, we're going to discuss several systemic challenges to building a life-affirming society. And in the second half, we're going to discuss some ways that medical professionals can help address those challenges. Today's guest is Alexandra Davidson, a fourth-year medical student in Kansas and a mother of two. Alexandra is an APLOG member as well as a student ambassador for Facts About Fertility, a fertility awareness education organization. In 2023, at our Matthew Bolfin Educational Conference, Alexandra won the Honeycutt Award for her outstanding scientific poster presentation, highlighting her research on Kansas physicians' knowledge and perceptions of fertility awareness-based family planning methods. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to dive into this very broad topic. Um, It's very important as well. First, could you tell us a little bit about your personal and professional journey? How did you become interested in women's health as someone with your values? And what are the events that led you to try and take a more holistic look at what medical professionals can do to build a life-affirming society? I was first introduced to the concept of being pro-life in Catholic school And I was someone who was never good at just taking someone's word for something. I always wanted to understand why I was being told something was the way that it was or why I was being told to do something. So I would say I really built my faith and my dedication to pro-life values through the process of questioning and challenging them. And as different things have happened throughout my life, I've continued that process in many iterations. 
Um, I didn't start medical school explicitly interested in women's health, but looking back, there are examples of things that showed my interest even from a young age. A critical point in my journey was actually when I was first introduced to natural family planning, which is a subtype of fertility awareness-based method, specifically the Creighton model in my marriage prep class in college. And I remember being struck by how cool the physiology behind the Creighton model was, but also being sort of angry that it was something that I'd never heard of before. And kind of after that, I was very intrigued by the concept and started to look into it further. And it was shortly after I started medical school, I started getting asked what I wanted to do for a research project, since that's an important component of many residency applications. And based on some experiences I had bringing up questions about fertility awareness-based methods or natural family planning to doctors, I wondered how that topic was incorporated into the medical school curriculum and pretty quickly found out that, if at all, it was generally in terms of, hey, this is a thing, it doesn't really work. So I thought that it was a really great opportunity to do more research and see that if it was it was something that could possibly be introduced into the medical school curriculum as a point of cultural competency for people who choose to use natural family planning or fertility awareness-based methods for religious or personal reasons, as well as from a medical standpoint, because they don't come with any side effects and they don't require any invasive procedures or devices. Not to mention, it's also a great tool to teach the physiology of the menstrual cycle. So at the end of my first semester of medical school, I started having some weird symptoms and realized that I should take a pregnancy test, which came back blazing positive. <laughs> and I just remember being stunned in that moment because we were in no way planning on having a child at that time. I remember feeling surprised that I wasn't completely terrified and upset by the news because that's what I would have expected to feel, though I certainly wouldn't say I was happy or excited about it. And the reason I'm getting into all this here is because this experience was a major part of what caused me to dive in deeper to both women's health as well as what it really means to create a pro-life culture or a life-affirming culture. So my son was born in August of 2021. By the time Roe v. Wade was overturned in June of 2022, I was very acutely aware of the many benefits as well as challenges of having an unplanned pregnancy. Around that time, social media was abuzz with mostly outrage from pro-choice individuals, and I noticed that they tended to use terms like anti-abortion or pro-fetus, and I started to wonder what prompted this. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I like to challenge my own confirmation bias, so I started reading a lot of pro-choice material and reflecting on why so many people felt so strongly that abortion was a necessary procedure for women. And scathing commentary aside, I started realizing the root of some of this criticism was honestly pretty valid. And after having a very positive experience at the Matthew Bolfin Educational Conference in February of 2023... I felt there was an elephant in the room that both sides of this debate could honestly agree upon, but neither were addressing. And that's why I'm here today. Thank you so much for sharing your story there. And I do remember uh, it's good to get some context on how you got to where you are, just because I, I remember you had reached out to us after uh, MBAC just with with the ideas that we're going to be talking about today. And we felt that it was important to address 
Just to dive in, you know, I have a little bit of, of personal experience uh, speaking with women who are considering abortion because I, I used to volunteer at a pregnancy resource center as a patient advocate. And also, obviously, I've, I've had friends in, in those types of situations. Um, and one thing I noticed from those conversations is that even before a, preg- a patient gets pregnant and considers abortion, uh, she might have internalized some prominent societal mes- messages that may deter her from choosing life for her child, especially those related to relationships relationships and sex. So um, what are some of those messages? We are saturated in sexual content. How much of advertising has some sexual component to it? What percentage of popular music alludes to or outright mentions some sort of sexual contact, especially in a casual or pleasure-focused context? What percentage of movies or TV shows have components of sexual encounter and how often is it in the context of being recreational? I don't know the exact numbers, but I know it's a lot. And books are no refuge from it either, including young adult fiction. So from a young age and with no abatement as we age, we're constantly exposed to this idea that recreational sex is normal, healthy, and something everyone does. And perhaps more importantly, sexual pleasure is portrayed as one of the most desirable things there are to seek out in this world. And maybe not directly, but certainly indirectly in the volume in which it's a major focus of so much of consumable popular media. So we live in this sex-saturated culture with these often distorted representations of the biologic ties between sex and childbearing. And you know, what do we learn about these things in a context outside of advertising or entertainment? The majority of the time, adolescents and young adults experience one of two things, either an abstinence-only approach that generally takes the angle that they shouldn't be having sex because they're not married, they could get pregnant, they could get STIs, so they don't need to know anymore, then bad things can happen, you should avoid putting yourself at risk because sex is bad and dangerous and dirty. The other camp generally takes the approach that adolescents and young adults are hormone-crazed and uninhibited and will have sex no matter what you do. So the best thing we can do is to try and keep them from getting pregnant or getting STIs. And so the term that's often used is safe sex, which is fundamentally an oxymoron. I would like to say sex is normal. It's not bad or dirty. And oftentimes it's a very positive thing when people are in a good, committed relationship. However... Even in the best of circumstances, sex comes with a lot of risks, and this includes infection as well as the potential for pregnancy, as we will discuss later, and every act comes with the potential for a whole host of lifelong social, emotional, physical, mental, and financial implications, not all of which are positive, particularly when the circumstances aren't the best. So the typical approach to risk mitigation is emphasizing the use of condoms for infection control and sometimes pregnancy prevention, as well as various forms of birth control for pregnancy prevention. This could easily become a discussion in and of itself, but a major downfall to the approach we take as a society is by overselling the efficacy of these things. So are barriers and contraceptives at a population level pretty good at preventing STIs and pregnancy? Yes. However, failure of those things is far from uncommon. So even if you're using a method with a 2% failure rate per year, if it fails, you're 100% pregnant. 
per the CDC, oral contraceptives have a 7% failure rate per year with average use. So 7 out of 100 women will get a positive pregnancy test per year with average use of oral contraceptives. Birth control failures are partly due to imperfect use, but even with long-acting reversible contraceptives or LARCs, which by far are the most effective form of contraception, pregnancies are still far from unheard of. Every OBGYN I've ever asked has seen at least a handful of pregnancies that occurred in patients with LARCs. So, in summary, we live in a culture that asserts that sex in an uncommitted relationship is common and desirable and arguably even essential, but that pregnancy is something that should only occur in a very stable, committed relationship. The solution to this disconnect is birth control, and the terms that are often used to discuss this with patients and young adults are safe, protected, effective, and control without much, if any, acknowledgement that the possibility of infection or, more importantly, pregnancy, while markedly reduced, is far from remote. So when women who were doing everything right turn up pregnant, the default assumption is that she must not have been dedicated enough to her birth control. And on the woman's part, there's often shock and guilt because she did everything right, or at least she thought so, and this wasn't supposed to happen, but it did. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really good summary. And I would say it matches up with what another one of our guests has talked about when he came on to talk about the effects of societal and cultural messaging around sex on abortion rates. So some people might be wondering what this information has to do with abortion. Well, if you're wondering, you could take a look at episode 16 of our podcast with Dr. Callum Miller, where he talks about the effects of contraception and sex education on abortion rates. And and what he said really matches up with what you were saying, Alexandra, about how in societies like ours, that really decouples the idea of sex from pregnancy. The widespread usage of contraception can really increase the absolute numbers of abortions every year uh, because they fail to consider the um, very real risk of product failure, even with, you know, good usage. So uh, this is all really important information. And it's it's really important to acknowledge this as a factor that might go into a woman becoming pregnant and considering abortion. Um, Pivoting to another topic that comes up after pregnancy. In my experience, you know, speaking to women who have considered abortion in their past, I find that one of their major concerns isn't even necessarily the pregnancy itself. You know, we, we talk about supporting women through pregnancy, and that's obviously that's essential, that's important. But when they're finding themselves pregnant, they're not necessarily thinking about how am I going to make it through the next 40 weeks. They're mostly thinking about how they're going to make it through the many years that come after where they have to care for and raise a child. So, uh, Alexandra, what are your thoughts on this burden that many mothers and fathers anticipate when they're pregnant and faced with a future of parenthood? Being a mom is dang hard sometimes. And the society in which we live makes it harder than it has to be. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, my first pregnancy was not planned I was a first-year medical student. My husband and I both grew up as the oldest child of mothers that completed their education and launched a career before starting a family in their early 30s. I had very much bought into the concept that having a baby would impede education and building a successful career. 
I was very committed to avoiding pregnancy and was putting a lot of effort into using an effective method of pregnancy prevention correctly. And when I experienced a method failure that by all investigative efforts was not related to my dedication to it, I felt simultaneously guilty and betrayed. I was married. I was in a great relationship. Yet I felt shame that I had made the mistake of getting pregnant because I was in school and it wasn't planned. And this is an experience not unique to me. I grew up with an abstinence-only approach to sex. Thankfully, it wasn't sex is bad and dirty, but it was clearly impressed upon me that having sex could get you pregnant and getting pregnant would be a disaster for a variety of reasons, so don't have sex. And I'm here to tell you this mentality doesn't magically go away once you get married. I have a dear friend who grew up in a similar framework that's also married in graduate school in a great relationship. And she was terrified to tell her boss and even her best friends that she was pregnant because of this bizarre internalized holdover from adolescence about pregnancy being something that's shameful and antagonistic to career success. And once I sort of wrapped my head around my own first pregnancy I had to tell my medical school and our families, and I was terrified that there would be disappointment, like I had thrown my future away, but the reception was mostly positive and my family and school were supportive. However, I don't think this is the case for everyone, especially couples in a less stable relationship or situations where it's not even really a couple we're talking about, it's a situation where now it's just mom. And I won't spend long on the challenges of pregnancy itself, but I can definitely say that nine months of not feeling yourself can take a significant toll on your productivity and outlook and self-image. And that's even if someone has a completely normal pregnancy, you know, you introduce complications into that and it becomes even more challenging. And a term I hear often regarding motherhood is loneliness. We live in a society that prefers children to be seen and not heard. And if you doubt this, look up articles about child-free weddings, people complaining about children on planes or in restaurants, or just look around you when you're out in public and you see a kid throwing a tantrum. No matter how great of a parent you are, there will be times that your children are disruptive. And if you take them in public, they'll be disruptive in public. And some of that behavior is just a part of the normal process of a developing brain learning how to regulate itself in a very complex world. And the fear and reality of social isolation that's faced in motherhood is real and not trivial. And I would encourage anyone to read more about that because I don't have time to dive into that deeper here. But another huge change and learning curve most people don't talk about and we don't even learn much about in medical school is lactation. So breastfeeding a newborn is the only thing that I can think of that requires conscious effort every two hours around the clock in an unrelenting fashion. And it isn't all bonding and cuddles for a lot of people. It can be frustration and crying for both parties involved. And sometimes when mom and baby are both learning, excruciatingly painful. And I have been very thankful for the ability to nurse both of my children, but will never forget how foreign and disorienting the whole experience was at first. I remember saying breastfeeding is the most unnatural, natural thing that there is. And there is literature showing that physicians are 
at more risk of not meeting their breastfeeding goals due to pressures of their work environment. And so this was the reason for the founding of the organization Dr. Milk, which provides education and support for this specific population surrounding the unique logistics of maintaining a breastfeeding relationship while maintaining a career in medicine. And from being a part of that group, I've benefited immensely, but have seen a depressing number of examples of systemic discrimination toward lactating mothers in medicine. And there are so many posts about the challenges of obtaining appropriate lactation accommodations for standardized tests like step exams, such as time and space to pump. I've also seen so many examples of management of attending and resident physicians being asked to eliminate or reduce their pump time directly or indirectly to increase productivity, even when most are already charting or making phone calls while pumping. And while hands-free pumps like the LV or Willow can help some, they're not a panacea. So next to the time commitment, the biggest challenge people face is the financial implication of a child. Formula is extremely expensive, and the supplies to support a successful and functional breastfeeding relationship are as well. There are often resources to help out with this and other expenses like clothing and other necessities for babies, but what is often harder to navigate is child care. And there are several child care shortages throughout the country. I started looking for child care about halfway through my first pregnancy and ultimately ended up making over 100 phone calls to come up with nothing except one home daycare that had a bunch of red flags and I didn't feel like I could leave my baby at safely. And most home daycares in our area have a wait list two years out, as well as the daycare facilities, which are chronically understaffed. And as a result, I was my son's primary caretaker for 10 months while being a full-time medical student. And the only realistic option we ended up having was to max out my student loans to allow us to afford cost of living and ultimately hire a nanny before my third year rotations. This isn't the case everywhere, but is a big issue in more rural areas. And the reality many women face in this situation is having to quit their jobs altogether, which is the preferred option for some women anyway, and that's perfectly fine, but for many women, it's not so much a choice as a necessity due to cost, availability, and safety of childcare options. You just brought up a lot of really important points, and I'm sorry you, you've been having to go through all of that. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's a sacrifice. It's a really important sacrifice, but it really, what we're talking about today is that it really doesn't have to be so much of a sacrifice for, for women. So um, before we dive into solutions, um, I just wanted to zoom in a little bit more on a topic that you have alluded to in, in the, the answer you just gave, but um, the, a related issue is that of the asymmetrical roles that men and women have in caring for children, which impact their experiences and opportunities at work. So you mentioned all the breastfeeding uh, obstacles and challenges that mothers face is not necessarily something that a dad would have um, if he's involved in you know raising the child in the first place. So yeah, could you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So this is huge. There are some things that only women can do, like being pregnant and lactating. And those things are necessary and important for bringing new life into the world, but they are 
very much time and energy consuming and it is very difficult to just pile that on top of all of the things that we already have going on in life and act like, you know, it's a featherweight because it's, it's not, um, we live in a society where mom is the default parent and this has, you know, biological basis in it to some degree, but largely it's societal. And this comes from a structure that was established before there was a way to reliably limit family size or time pregnancy. So, there was a 40-hour work week established as a norm. The pay was such that, you know, dad could go to work, earn a livable wage, mom could stay at home, take care of the children, take care of the house, and make sure that everyone was fed and everything was clean. And that was the structure that was in place during the invention and adoption of birth control as well as the time in which women started to enter the workforce more, which I believe was primarily during World War II. Rather than reassessing the structure that we had built and saying, you know, maybe we need to adjust this workplace structure to reflect the different roles that each person in the household has, the expectation that we've placed is that to be a successful couple, generally most people have to work to earn a livable wage unless one of the two people has a very high earning potential. But the expectation for the home life is still what it was when mom stayed at home all the time. But the expectation for a woman's work life, regardless of if she does or does not have children, is that she would be able to function in the same capacity as a man who was being supported by a woman staying home full-time, watching the children and able to focus on all of those things as her primary, you know, day daytime tasks. And instead of saying maybe it's not realistic to ask women to both be, you know, the traditional housewife and the traditional career man, and assessing, you know, what we can do to reshape the way that we structure our workplaces, we have basically given women the option to do one, the other, or somehow do both to the same extent that one person would be expected to do one with their full effort and if they can't do that, which is an extremely unrealistic expectation, they're looked down upon as either being a bad mom or a bad employee or both. <laughs> and so I think that is the root of a lot of the reason people delay childbearing, have fewer children, 
choose to not have children at all or feel like they're very trapped in this situation of having to choose because the educational system and the workforce is simply not set up for people to be having and then nursing children or taking care of sick children. Absolutely. Those are some really important points. Uh, This has been a great first half of this conversation. Uh, I look forward to continuing in part two, where we will discuss ways that medical professionals can help tackle the problems that Alexandra's been talking about uh, in their practice and in their careers, using their influence and expertise to move the ball towards building a more life-affirming society. And a massive thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen. If you have any topic requests, you can reach out to us on social media via the links in the description of this episode or via email at info at aaplog.org. If you're a medical professional interested in joining the AppLog community, we'd love to have you become a member by going to aaplog.org slash join. We exist to support your pro-life practice. We will see you next week.